Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really honored to be joined by Dr. Eric Topol, who I first met over eight years ago through TedMed Smartphone Physical and had the opportunity to publish a paper in academic medicine with on the role of mobile devices for medical education. Dr. Topol is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, professor of molecular medicine, and executive vice president of Scripps Research. As a researcher, he has published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles with more than 280,000 citations. He's been elected to the National Academy of Medicine and is one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine. His principal scientific focus has been on the genomic and digital tools to individualize medicine, and he's written several best-selling books in the future of healthcare. So Dr. Topol, great to see you again. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks very much, Shiv. Good to be back with you. Yeah. So obviously, I know a lot about your background, and we could spend a whole 30 minutes just me citing all your accomplishments, but I'd love to hear uh, in your own words about your background, how you got into cardiology, and what led you to found the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Oh, well, that's a long story. I, I think, you know, it actually goes back to my real love was um, genetics, which later became genomics uh, back even in college. And I went into cardiology because in medicine, that was a discipline that you could actually do things. But eventually I got back to genetics and genomics. Um, and then uh, here at Scripps back in 06, when I first got here, uh, we actually not only delved into the genetics, uh, but also the digital side, as you know, Shiv. And that's where we recognized that we just the DNA sequence wasn't gonna be enough, that we needed to have other ways to understand each human being at a, at a deep level. So it evolved like that. And you know, we have basically um, equal emphasis on the biologic and the physiologic and anatomic differences that account for why each of us are unique. Getting into more of the clinical side now, and we'll get back to the research side of, of what you've done, as well as the, the predictions you've made around the future of healthcare. You know, one of the things I know you've done is you, you helped found the medical school at Cleveland Clinic. Um, and given that our audience uh, consists of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, I know they'd love to hear about that experience founding that school. And then what obstacles you had when you were starting it? Well, there was no shortage of obstacles. Cleveland Clinic had no degree granting authority. And uh, so what we had to do uh, when I was given the green light, I've been you know, interested in doing it for a stretch of a few years. But finally, when the, the CEO of Cleveland Clinic, then Floyd Loop said to me, okay, Eric, go for it. If you can do this, you know, that'd be terrific. So uh, I don't think he anticipated it would be possible because we had to work through Case Western, which is, um, you know, in a way it's highly competitive because they have a healthcare system of their own university hospitals. And so it was like taking down the Berlin Wall. And there was one other major obstacle, and that is that the AAMC, which governs new medical schools, had not had a new medical school in 26 years, which is kind of amazing. They didn't even have a, a group of people at the time to evaluate a new medical school and a new curriculum. And of course, since that time, there's been, I think, even 20 or so that have gone forward. But uh, this was in 2002, finally, Case Western agreed to have a second medical school, this Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, and it's a special group because it's a small school. You know, it's uh, only 32 students and uh, it's free tuition. It attracts a lot of the best people uh, going into medicine in the country. You know, I'm really proud of it. It's certainly one of the things that I look back and feel that 
it was worth the fight, worth the, you know, trying to take down the wall in Cleveland and get a med school. And, and indeed, some of those graduates have come and worked with me at Scripps, which is really, uh, you know, kind of the, the whole loop uh, fulfilled is to get to see them at a later stage in their career. So thanks for bringing it up. It's something that I, I really cherish that I was able to do that. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, we work with many of the students there, uh, both at Cleveland Clinic, Larner College and, and Case Western. So it's really cool, uh, again, to know that uh, I feel like every time I, I read another thing that you've written or about you, there's like a whole separate uh, rabbit hole of accomplishments and things you've done. Uh, going into some of the things I know you've done recently, like publishing Deep Medicine, uh, I think I first the first book of yours I read was The Creative Destruction of Medicine. And then you wrote The Patient Will See You Now. Um, I'd love to hear about what you're writing right now and then anything you want to share about the books, uh, how the creative destruction of medicine has played out since it's been nine years since you published that. So I'd love to get into your authorship uh, credentials. Yeah, well, I'm not working on any book right now. I'm just trying to get through the pandemic like all of us, I think. But the trilogy of books on the future of medicine, it started with the realization going back to that point earlier that uh, digital medicine was going to be big and that we weren't really using it. And the only thing was this failed attempt of electronic health records. But um, there's so much more to it, of course, as you well know, with being able to use sensors, being able to use a smartphone to do the physical exam and all sorts of things like that. So um, that realization is what led to the first book that we need to digitize medicine. Then it was abundantly clear that that made data eminently portable and we need to democratize medicine. And that was really the second book, The Patient Will See You Now. And then finally, which I think is hopefully the last of the three, the idea was the data is a torrent. It's impossible for any human person to be able to assimilate that data. We need to rely on machines. And the reliance on machines goes even beyond that, not just to be able to process the data and make medicine more accurate in terms of diagnoses, in terms of the right therapy and right preventions, but much more far-reaching than that is to enhance the humanity in medicine. And since I'm you know, an old dog and knows medicine from the late 70s when I graduated med school to the early 80s, it was very different then. You had a very deep connection with your patients and they felt it too. They felt uh, this precious trust that when you were with them, you had a real presence and you could exude empathy and compassion. That's been lost largely. I mean, yes, you, you see it, you know, and I feel lucky that I still practice and, and try to do that, emulate those principles, but it's not a, a, a major factor in medicine the way it used to be. So that's why, you know, I, I wrote the book on AI, Deep Medicine, to try to get us to realize that that opportunity lies in front of us. And I'm hoping someday we'll actualize it. It won't happen quickly. And it will take much more effort than just to enhance accuracy. But someday we, we might be able to get there. Yeah, and that's one of the things like, I always love seeing panels that, that you lead or, or have with uh, Abraham Varghese at Stanford, because I think your reputation as, as both a, a clinician who's uh, talked long about genetics as well as AI and medicine um, tends to be that you're a futurist. Uh, and then we have Abraham Varghese, who's all about traditionalist kind of medicine. But like your whole point has been that take a lot of the things that doctors don't need to be doing or any clinician don't need to be doing so you can restore care in that setting so they can focus on the things that only humans can provide. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I'm really glad you brought up Abraham Verghese. We've become really close friends. And uh, 
he, uh, you may know, he was given the, uh, the President's Medal uh, for uh, humanistic work from Obama. And he is, in all the people in medicine I know, the ultimate uh, humanist, the person who really um, has a, a really uh, remarkable understanding of human empathy and the human bond. So together, you know, we've been working more and more. We're writing together now. We're, you know, we do a podcast, Medicine and the Machine. Uh, and I also want to add that, you know, I had a really tough time with knee surgery four years ago. You know, I actually never fully recovered from a knee replacement. And I turned to Abraham as a friend to try to understand my feelings, you know, in, in the tough time that I had. And so, you know, that just even further brought us together. He, he's um, a great thinker, great writer. The deep medicine, he wrote the foreword for the book. The, the idea that that we could use technology to enhance humanity is is counterintuitive, and uh, I think you know we now both are fully supportive of that principle. And now is the work that's hard to do is to to realize it. Yeah, no, I mean it's a it reminds me of that quote that the the future is here already, it's just not evenly distributed. You know, some places like Scripps, uh, you guys are doing tremendous things with regards to genetics that will take a long time to diffuse to to even other places in the US. A great example of that is on the Washington Post front page uh, today, actually, is the uh, genomic sequencing of the virus in the pandemic. So we're at a tiny fraction compared to Britain in terms of doing this and tracing outbreaks. And in our group, Christian Anderson has done um, the second most sequencing uh, in the United States, extensive sequencing of the virus. and to try to trace outbreaks. But here we have the super spreader event at the Rose Garden, and there's not even an attempt at basic contact tracing, no less the genomics to identify the transmission chain. So, you know, I think this is another example of, you know, when we started um, back in uh, beginning of 07 on the Institute, um, we didn't know that sequencing a pathogen was gonna become the norm, but we're still not doing it. It's very unevenly distributed and throughout most of the US, Sequencing has not been used to understand um, outbreaks and to prevent them. That is, when you when you can trace the virus so easily by subtle changes, non-functional changes in the letters, you can do so much to prevent you know further spread. So it's just you know somewhat disillusioning. I'm glad you brought that up because the other big news this week uh, of many was the first confirmed U.S. case of reinfection of a man in Nevada. And I would love love to hear your thoughts on it now that we're approaching winter. You know, COVID has been with us now six months in the U.S. in a big way. What are your thoughts on how the next, you know, six to 12 months may play out? It's not looking good for the U.S. by any means. We're on the upswing in terms of cases and hospitalizations. And there's been, never been a, a time since the pandemic started that we got suppression below 20,000 cases a day, which is just uh, unbelievable. There's never been the effort to get that. And now we've already seen a true second wave in Europe where, you know, countries that did achieve absolute containment. And then now they're, you know, one of the worst regions um, anywhere in the world. So this is a very challenging situation to be able to contain the virus and long COVID, uh, which I think is underestimated the, uh, the importance of that, of people having chronic disabling symptoms from this. So, you know, I, I think it's really unfortunate that we have been put in this position because we didn't let science lead. And if you look at all the countries that had that occur, and it's not just New Zealand and Australia, 
you know, we're looking at Vietnam, Japan, uh, Taiwan, Thailand, Iceland, Estonia, Uruguay. I mean, there's places all over the world on every continent. Even our neighbor Canada has far exceeded our ability to contain the virus. So it's been an abject failure and it, it's, it's, it's horrendous. And one thing I appreciate is you've been using your platform, uh, which is huge, to raise awareness. And I'd love to hear um, what has been the most surprising thing. I know Steve Hahn recently responded to something you had, had said directly about how you know science will come first. So I'd love to hear like what's been surprising to you. You've gone through a lot of controversy in medicine over the past few decades. This seems different. You know, when I got on Twitter 11 years ago, Shiv, it was mainly for me. I thought it was. I, I don't know why I did it. I, I saw a friend of mine convinced me. Actually, Linda Stone. It was. I was sitting in a meeting and she said, oh, you got to do this. And I, I said, well, I thought it was, you know, nonsense on it. But over time, I realized that it was a great platform for sharing information. And because I'm a news junkie reading a lot of medical science articles, I'll, I'll share them. You know, as soon as I read them, I'll just post something. But what I learned over the more recent years is that it's a highly effective way for activism. And so the most recent experience was using it to get to uh, the FDA and Steve Hahn to not let them have any shortcuts on the vaccine. It wasn't just the FDA, I also went after the companies. And, um, you know, it's turned out, I think, to be more powerful than I ever imagined because um, they, they get it, they, they read it. They might not always respond, but ultimately uh, they do. And like, for example, Pfizer set up a call with their senior vaccine team to try to deal with my issues and Steve Hahn got a hold of me after I did that with an open letter. And, you know, there are many other examples uh, in the past over these years, but it only took me eight years to figure out out of the 11 that this was, that it, the pluripotency of social media, in particular Twitter, could be quite uh, important. <laughs> so that's fascinating. Speaking of another platform that you use beyond Twitter, you're the editor-in-chief of Medscape. And one, one way we got reconnected was actually Joanne Strangis, who, who's now left WebMD Medscape. But you've, you've been there for some time now. I'd love to hear how that platform has evolved. I mean, do you see Medscape WebMD playing an increasing role in public health education? Especially, I think one thing COVID has revealed this year is how important public health is. Uh, trying to convey basic facts like how viruses are spread um, seems to have uh, been an issue this year. Right. So I think Medscape, uh, you know, I really enjoy that uh, role uh, I play in trying to work with a, a large group of journalists and talented individuals who are, again, like me, but, you know, much more multidimensional, uh, getting the best information out there for the medical community. And it's a large community and it's global. You know, it's not just uh, millions of physicians and nurses, but, you know, pharmacists all across the different disciplines of healthcare. So um, I think it just keeps getting better. You know, I've been editor-in-chief for several years now, and I'm really proud of that group. And the commitment, the dedication, um, and the talent is just always astounds me as what they can get done. So, you know, we, we aspire to be the best medical information content provider out there, it's not always the fastest. And that's always a disappointment for me because I am I have no patience, you know, but usually uh, it might be, you know, hours or the next day, but it's it's usually very solid. Yeah. And that's, that's where maybe Twitter comes in handy. Um, one side note is, you know, we have really deep uh, respect and roots with Medscape. So the founder of Medscape, who you may know, Peter Frischoff, uh, is our oldest advisor and largest angel investor at Osmosis. 
and apart from Joanne, we've really loved getting to know people like Anne Billu and Steve Zatz and Helen uh, Moran as well. So it's a great group, and I'm glad you're still at the helm of, the, of their editorial. Um, going back to COVID, what are some of the lasting changes you think that'll happen to the healthcare system as a result of COVID? Well, uh, you know, clearly telemedicine isn't going to go away. It may come down some because people's fears of getting their normal care in person will start to abate some. But I think it was a big jolt in telemedicine that was predicted to take hold, but this really forced the issue. But moreover, you know, I think telemedicine will build on its current foundation, which is just a video chat. Uh, and as you know, soon it'll be, it really is now suitable for data transfer and all sorts of objective things that could be done during the encounter, not just chat. So a telemedicine 2.0 is in the uh, works, I think, and we'll see that over time. And that gets to the idea that we could detect, we have a, a big project called Detect, uh, clusters of COVID before it emerges to a big outbreak. So if we just took a fraction of the 100 million people that have a wristband or a smartwatch that gives heart rate, no less steps, we could detect a cluster of COVID uh, very likely since we have a paper in press, how sharp a signal that is just to detect COVID-19. But if you put that out there and you had millions of people having their data streamed, you know, we'd be able to get on top of this. And, you know, in the years ahead, we're not going to see this virus go away so quickly. And there will be kind of like whack a virus all throughout the country. And so, you know, having a more reliance on sensors and AI to deal with that data is important. And hopefully people will recognize that. The other things that we could do if we're smart is avoiding the hospital for people who are uh, not just with COVID, but well beyond that. Because now there are sensor systems that would get your vital signs continuously. And with the right algorithmic development, and validation, getting people to stay at home in their own comfortable environment with their emotional support system, people. Uh, it's a lot cheaper. You could give them years of data plans for one night in the hospital charge. So, um, you know, I'm hoping we'll see that. Uh, we haven't yet broken into that in the US because uh, it's so, the perverse incentives that the reimbursement for hospital is so high that the challenge to that is, is almost nil. But what we have seen in COVID is that many health systems started ways to monitor patients at home with sensors and algorithms to try to preempt the need to put them in the hospital. So again, I think that's just like where telemedicine was, where it could actually ramp up a lot over time. And you know, overall, more embracement of data and algorithmic support, that's the hope. I, I think we'll see rapid tests at home that's another way for people to be engaged in their own diagnosis and their own isolation. And that's just more empowerment, which instead of having to go to some drive up place to have a test done, you know, to get the results back in 15 minutes by yourself and have it on your smartphone. So you got a passport for the day to go anywhere you want to go. You're not infectious. You know, I think these are things that will lead to the more self-diagnosis, self-empowerment that, you know, I've been thinking about for some time, I hope we'll, we'll get there. A lot of major retailers like Walmart are getting deep into healthcare. And we've been talking to the Walmart health team as an example, Walgreens, Best Buy even has a chief medical officer. What are your thoughts on the consumerization of these bigger brands and also the direct to consumer companies ranging from 23andMe to Roe that have gone into healthcare? Is that overall uh, what you predicted in 2014? Is it a good thing? It's mixed. You know, I can't say I'm 
big on these unless they're providing really great quality of care at low cost. I am, you know, as you allude to, I'm very supportive of people being empowered and being more autonomous. And it's not for everyone, for the people who want to do it. And so I, I think if it's done responsibly and if it really um, is validated to help people making a difference, um, you know, it's great. But a lot of these are not in that category. So, you know, that remains to be seen. I, I think it is unquestionably the path of the future. It's just a matter of, is it being done for business only purposes or is it really being done for helping people? And that's that latter part, you have to prove it. You have to show outcomes and cost effectiveness and all the things that you do for any medical intervention. Couldn't agree more. So I know we're coming up in time and uh, my last two questions for you are, are one, given that Osmosis's audience are primarily comprised of you know, millions of current and future healthcare professionals, what advice would you give to somebody considering a career in healthcare or early on in their journey towards becoming a health uh, professional? Well, I, I think I wish I could go back because you know right now I think we're on the cusp of the most exciting time in medicine. So as you well know, we are experiencing a global crisis of burnout. And it's not just burnout, it's also depression. And then even you know, a very substantial number of suicides each year among healthcare professionals. And this hasn't gotten any better with the pandemic. But the reason why I'm optimistic and why I wish I could go back is I think medicine can only get better now. It's unidirectional, it's hitting bottom in terms of the toll it takes on all clinicians of all types. And that's why, you know, I really do think if we embrace the potential of AI and deep neural networks, and even the models that haven't been built yet that will work with the AI uh, construct, you know, I think we can get out of the mess we're in right now. And the reason we went into medicine was to care for patients. And if you feel you can't provide care, that's when you get depressed and you disenchanted and you, you lose your sense of your mission and why you work so hard to become a clinician. So I, I just want to see us get back to that. And I'm actually excited where this is headed because it's just hard to envision it getting much worse. That's an interesting way to put it. And I agree. I think it is a very exciting time. And hopefully some of the listeners are out there have solutions they can bring to the, the industry. My last question is, is, is there anything else that you want to say to our audience while you have them? Anything I didn't touch upon? Well, you covered a lot of ground with your, your uh, insightful questions, Jim. I appreciate the chance to talk with you and hope that your listeners will keep up with all the latest information and, and be inspired. Well, you're a part of that, Dr. Tobel, at least for me and I know for many of the listeners. So thanks for taking the time to be with us today. You bet. Really good to talk to you. And with that, I'm Shibulani. Thanks to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>